Greg and everybody listening to Move the Needle. How are you? Hey, Jason. I am doing well. How about yourself? I wish everyone could say like, hi, how are you doing? You know, like that was a thing in podcasting, like just like in their app, they could just press a button. It's like, I'm doing great. And then I could listen to those. I think that'd be a fun feature. Someone needs to make that. Uh, That's bizarre. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, that actually, I believe is what Anchor FM like started as. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you could like respond or talk. Yeah. I did that. Like. Yeah, that's right. You did. I think I remember you posting like a couple of those on Twitter or whatever, like you'd like left thoughts or whatever. But my thing was, is to leave people responses to theirs more than right. do my own, which I absolutely yeah. loved. I think that's really clever and fun. And also people didn't understand my irony and humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was just like, why is this guy such a dick? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's basically what it turned into. So I stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is funny when you don't have someone to like either translate or balance it out and yeah, no just context. people don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People don't understand. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Greg's just mad at everybody. It's yeah. like, no, not Who at all. Who is this guy at yeah. G Heart yeah. 26 yeah. that's just talking yeah. shit about what I just said? Yeah. Uh, that's funny. No, that's good. Uh, well, right before we started recording, I told you I have a ton of stuff to, to update on. And actually, when I say a ton of stuff, I really just mean I have a lot of things about Wandering Aimfleet I want to kind of talk about. Yeah. But I do have two other projects I want to update you on. So um, I'm going to jump in with Tea Tree just because that's a quick one. And then... Uh, toss it back to you and then we can kind of go back and forth from there. All right. So teachery.com, that's your online learning course platform. Dot uh, co. Fun co. fact about the dot Jeez, com. Since, since I picked that name in 2015 or late 2014, it was createyouronlinecourse.com before that. Mm. Uh, we still have that domain. That's our staging site. Uh, fun fact for everybody. But I have emailed the dot com owners. Like if you go to teachery.com, it's still not a thing. They, every time I email them, and this is like, I've emailed them probably twice a year, every year, they respond with the, almost the exact same thing. We're working on a big idea. We really need the domain. Hmm. And they've said that since late 2014, early 2015. So I've tried to get the domain. I've offered them money. I've, you know, at a certain point, Teachery had like a decent amount of cash. Like we're talking like 50 grand in the bank. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'll give you 10 grand for the domain. Like I was at that point where I was just like, I just want it at this point. No interest. They just have no interest. Well, I just, I'm baffled. They're working on a big idea, man. They're working, big idea, yeah. big idea. So I don't know. Eventually, like if I trademark Tea Tree, if, you know, if we want to go that route, like I could probably get the domain from them. But anyway, that's a whole other ball of wax. So let me, uh, last episode, I talked to you about the Stripe change, yes. the derailed Tea Tree. So for anybody who didn't listen to the last episode, very quick update. Stripe is our payment processor behind the scenes. It takes care of both Tea Tree customers, when they give us a credit card, Stripe is the company behind the scenes that processes that and then gives us money for them to use Tea Tree. But then also as a course creator, like Greg, uh, when you set up a course, you connect your own Stripe account so that then when you give someone a student of your course a payment page, they pay you, you then get money in your Stripe account. So Stripe is very integral to Tea Tree. And they have, because of the EU, there's some weird like, it's basically the best way I can describe it. You know, those really annoying capture boxes where you have to like pick the stoplights to prove you're not a robot, like the little images. It's basically that, but it's for payments. So you would click buy and then this little like modal pops up. That's like, are you sure you want to buy? Like confirm you're not a robot, like maliciously buying things or something. Uh, and it's the weird thing is that like no one really knows 
which exact country in which instance is going to happen. And that's why it's kind of like capture. Like you don't know when you're going to have to pick the stop signs or the street lights or the cars. Um, so anyway, I, br- I bring all that up because last episode I told you, and we talked about this, you're like, are you going to email everybody? And I was like, no, like I always err on the side of over communicating. But with this one, it doesn't, I don't really need to do it because it's not going to affect everybody. <laughs> And of course, we got like three emails from Tea Tree customers uh, between recording this episode, last episode and this episode who are like, hey, I got an email from Stripe about this SCA thing. And they said I have to make all these changes. Uh, do I need to do this? Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> so I did have to send out an email. And, uh, you know, that's one of those fun things of when you own your own business and you're really small. Like I didn't have to check with like corporate communications and I didn't have to pass (laughs) it through a lawyer. I could just be honest and direct with people and just go, hey, this is Stripe. This is what it does. These are the changes they're making. It's like this CAPTCHA thing. I even included a little gif of what a CAPTCHA was just to remind people. And just like, don't worry, we're taking care of it for you. Uh, And so got to, you know, uh, couple people responded they're like thanks you guys are always awesome for taking care of this stuff Uh, but it is interesting like all of the tools that i use that involve stripe on the back end that like i don't even know about like one's called churn buster we actually use it with tea tree and when a tea tree customer's payment fails churn buster is behind the scenes sending them emails saying like hey your payment failed Mm -hmm. please update your credit card here so churn buster uses stripe on our behalf. So they have to do all this SEA compliance. So it's like this weird ripple effect that you're seeing. Um, And I even had some tweets from a guy who like, he's a one person business owner. Like he does everything for his SaaS app. And so he's having to do all this work and you know, it's, it's really derailing him, but I guess the European union regulators pushed back. Like they had some weird meeting where they were like, this is affecting too many people. Like we need to push this back. They pushed it back 18 months. Mm which is bizarre. So Stripe still says like, get it done, get it out of the way. Like we still believe in this deadline. But anyway, that's a very long <laughs> update to last episode. But I just thought it was ironic that we went down this whole thing last episode was like, no, I'm not going to email people. We got this. And then like had to email them. So just kind of done. I have, I have a question that's related, but but kind of in a different vein. Yeah. How, how do you, um, what are your thoughts on, I'm not quite sure how to word this, so I've been involved in a couple of software companies, and in, in each instance, we leverage other software mm-hmm. for our software, just like you're doing, right? So Teachery is a software company. It leverages a company like Stripe yep. for payments so that you don't have to build your own in-house payment system. And that's where the world is going, yep. right? And it has for some time now where everything is just integrated, right? So like if you need to host files... A lot of early startups especially won't build their own hosting platform. They'll use Amazon's web services or something like that, right? So, of course, you are beholden to what that company does with their platform. Now, the advantage is for everybody to play nice with each other and to help each other because then everybody wins, right? You make the pie bigger, um, and everyone gets paid. So, you know, Amazon Web Services or Stripe – uh, you know, has a vested interest in you succeeding with Teachery so that they make more money, mm-hmm. right? So my question to you is, how do you handle those types of situations with your customers? Like, what's the balance between this is what I have control over and this is what I don't have control over, especially for your customers who may not be tech savvy, like don't understand who Stripe is or what they do. 
uh, where it's like, but I'm paying you, Jason, at Teachery right. for this, and now you're telling me this other company's got a problem, and I've got to deal with it because you leverage them. Just maybe what are some of your overall thoughts? Because I think more and more, um, you know, like even me, right? So if I leverage Teachery and you're leveraging Stripe, <laughs> right, it just gets deeper and deeper. Where now with my customers, um, you know, with my course, I perhaps in certain situations, maybe not in this one, but in certain situations, will need to inform my customers of a problem you're having with a problem with another company, <laughs> right? Where do you think we're going with this? Just kind of how do you handle it from a customer service perspective? Yeah, it is really interesting because I've watched you know, I mean, not as closely as many people because I didn't have a software company until 2013. But I remember back in the early 2000s when I started the design company that I started with my friend, like right when I left the nine to five world and we built an app and it was an app that uh, was called Only Human. And the entire idea was to share like mistakes that you made and lessons learned. And so we really wanted to build almost like a social network for like, like learning, like learning from things you did in life. And, and I really loved it. Like it was just kind of a fun experience, but back in that time there was no Stripe. So we actually, as a, a company decision decided the app would have to be free because we literally couldn't spend the hours and the time to build a payment processing yeah. system. Like I remember I called payment merchant like companies that were helping software companies at that time. So like the stripes of that time, but none of them were friendly. Right. Like there were no documentation, you know, easy to set up. There were no APIs and I'm sure there were some, and I just didn't know exactly where to look, but it was not easy. And so actually that changed the complete trajectory of that business where we saw it as a potential thing that we could make money from as, oh, this is just a marketing vehicle for us because we don't have the ability to put payment processing on the end of this. We just don't have the manpower to do it. And I do think that that is a really nice place that we're at in like the late 2000 teens of software building where you can plug in Stripe or you can plug in, you know, these other things so quickly and so easily that it helps you actually spin up something that works. But you are right. Like as you start to leverage all of these platforms, you start to give up a little bit of control. So when Stripe makes this change, like I talked about in last episode, it derailed our entire like feature roadmap that I had set up that was like really nice and sexy. Right. And for two months, we can't work on features. <clears throat> so that... That to me is the really hard part. And, and I think the the other part of this is the explaining to customers how things work. You know, the way that we've always positioned Stripe for people, especially people like you've talked about, because I would say probably half to three quarters of our customers have no idea what Stripe is, maybe more than that. And they don't know why they need it when they would first sign up. And that's mm -hmm. actually why I wrote like the help doc that we have now, because it clearly explains it and people get it now. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, it was really difficult to explain to people like, okay, no one who buys from you, your course, will ever know Stripe exists. And they're like, but I don't understand. I'm like, okay, how do I explain? Like, yeah. It's hard to explain. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you run your credit card, just so you know, like Whole Foods is not the company that you're running your credit card through. There's a processor in that little box at the register that you're swiping your card through or inserting your card in or tapping your card in, whatever the technology is that we're at now. That company is actually the company that you're paying. You just Whole Foods takes care of all of it. So these things are happening everywhere. And, and I do think that 
The only dangerous thing that I see, or maybe not dangerous, but tricky thing is when you don't have any proprietary like code, like any IP or anything that your software company does, that it's all out leveraged across all these other apps that do all these things. That's when I think it's a domino effect because it's like when one of them goes wrong or two of them go wrong, everything crumbles. So for us, I, you know, I don't worry much about this stuff because, yeah, we use Amazon for hosting for images and things. Uh, we use Stripe for payment processing, but pretty much everything else is like handwritten code. So our app is, I mean, certainly not bulletproof, but it's we own everything so we can you know make all those decisions. But I do think that is the interesting part where the good of being able to spin up a new software company, plug all these things in, you can have something running in a couple days is also the dangerous side where there's a little bit of like potential of leaky bucket slash dominoes metaphors that can happen there. Uh, and you do have to be tricky with it. Well, and I think so. I think there's two aspects to that. The first is the technical side, right? So you have to protect yourself technically so that things work. And the example you gave with the grocery store, for example, I've never gone to the grocery store, got my groceries, paid for my groceries, and then had them say to me, well, we use a third party for blank and it's not working right now. So <laughs> yeah. you're fucked customer. But I've had plenty of software companies do that to me. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, well, I'm sorry, we use blank for blank and now Twitter's down or yeah. we use yeah. blank for blank and now this is down or whatever. Right. I've had tons of software companies do that to me as a customer. And I think one of the big differences is with software, software companies have gotten away with very low bars, yes, right of 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 performance. Whereas in the old world, you know, and in the physical world, you don't get to get away with that. It's got to work each and every time, and you don't get that downtime. You you know, very rarely do you have those problems, right? In a in a physical store or something like that. So that's one major difference is. Software has gotten lazy, I think, in setting low bars for that stuff and then just pawning it off on the customer as, oops, sorry, but yeah. I can't do anything about it. You're a screwed customer. And then the second thing is, so that's like the technical side, but the, the oops, sorry part is like the more important side almost, which is how do you convey this message and who takes responsibility yeah. for it? Uh, is really important. And from a, from a, like understanding, you know, if, if I'm a listener to this podcast and understanding my own business that leverages software, that's the one thing to be ready for, especially before it happens, which is how are you going to take responsibility for this? How are you going to convey the message to your customer? Um, when it's dicey, right? When it's like, yeah. well, we don't actually do this. We didn't actually create this problem and we don't actually know when it's going to be fixed. Yep. But somehow I've got to take responsibility um, and and help you, customer, get through this. One of the things that I think you mentioned that you kind of glossed over that is really important is I don't think enough companies that lever leverage other people's software have good help documents to one, help you understand how it's working, and then two, uh, help you utilize it properly, mm -hmm. right? Which is, which is something, you know, for instance, you know, with one of the software companies that I'm working with, where, you know, there's a merchant account, 
through the software, you know, they have to sign up on their own merchant account and they have to understand how that works and use it. And literally customers are like, but where's my money? Like, where does my money go? Mm -hmm. Are you guys collecting my money? And it's like, no, 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 this other company's collecting your money. So if you have money issues, you got to deal with them, not us. But you can't say that in those words, right? Right. You got to you got to help them navigate that. So one part of that is the help documents. And then the second is how you approach customer service, you know, starting with your philosophy on are you going to do anything to help this customer? Yeah. Or are you going to say, hey, not my problem. You got to talk to this other company. Are you going to third party walk them through what they need to do with this other company if they have problems? Like if they call the other company and it's not working, like if I had a Stripe issue with Teachery, what I call you or Stripe with my merchant account, what I call you or Stripe in your example? Yeah, it's it's actually kind of a tough question to answer because we've never had an issue like that. So I don't know. I think it would depend on what happened and then I could go from there to give an answer. Yeah. But that to me is actually, that tells you how good Stripe is. Well, that's your next point. That's the next point, right? Is exactly. you've got to choose wa- exactly. partners wisely yep. that you have very few of these problems. And in the startup world, that's really important because perhaps that company isn't as sound um, or stable and you've got to know the answer to that question, right? Well, and that's why we, that's why for Teachery specifically, we haven't integrated with PayPal in, yet. And I've been wanting to do it for years and people have been asking us about it. It's a clusterfuck over there. They have like seven different type of apps that they promote that you can use from like a, a, a merchant side, like a tea tree side, like that we would plug into, but none of them do what we need them to do, which blows my mind. And what I found through research is that, so Stripe processes the transaction, right? Like that's, that's how it works. It works on your Stripe account. You have a connection to that. Like, you know, we don't touch the money at all. So tea tree never sees the money you have come through your course, mm-hmm. which I like because I don't want to handle your money. I don't want to, you know, get my fingers in it and then something goes wrong and blah, blah, blah. But what we found with a- almost everybody who uses PayPal, I think it's everybody who uses PayPal, actually, they pay, it goes into their PayPal account. So like Teachery would have a PayPal account. You would sell a course. It actually goes through our PayPal account. It sits in our account. Then I manually pay your PayPal mm-hmm. account from my PayPal account. Right, right. That to me, that's a house of cards. Like that, I just, and it's why we haven't integrated with PayPal because I don't want to hold people's money. And I know that some companies want to hold people's money because they can leverage that money. They can, you know, with arbitrage, sure. they can make money off of that money. But I just, I just don't, I don't like the idea of it for me personally in the way that I like to run our software company. Yeah. But then, but then the flip side of that is, is that then, then when I have a problem and I call you about my, my payment problem, it's not really a teachery problem. It's a Stripe problem. Right. And then now I've got to call Stripe and I've got to deal with Stripe. Right. So as a customer on, you know, as a front facing customer, that's where it can also get a little tricky is you can't really solve my problem. Right. But I'm paying you. Right. So I want you to solve my problem because I'm paying you. It's very similar to when Brad and I started Sitecast to host e-commerce. We didn't want to build an e-commerce platform, especially when there's some great ones out there. And we leveraged Shopify, right? Mm -hmm. So Shopify developer allowed us to build a Shopify e-commerce store on your website 
without building it custom, right? But that required you and customer to have also a Shopify account. Mm -hmm. So you had to have a Sitecast account and a Shopify account, similar to Teachery, right? You have to have a Teachery account and a Stripe account. And and my thing is, is my point is, is I think that's the way the world has been going. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right thing for the world, right? For technology, it's to leverage these tools that are being built by other software companies that are robust and sound, and that's their specialty. However, we've got to figure out a better way to communicate with the end customer that one, this is what's happening. Two, this is why it's valuable to you that this is what's happening. Even though you're paying me, you're using this company. And three, when there's a problem, we have to figure out who takes responsibility for that problem and how we can handhold until that problem is resolved. And in my experience, both as an end user customer and as somebody who has consulted other software companies, we haven't done well at those three things. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is, is end user customers are being left in the lurch with less than average software integration, very low bars, where software companies suck that you're integrating with. And then two, when there's a problem, no one wants to take responsibility for it and help me solve it, especially not the person I'm paying, yeah. even though the problem is with a company they've integrated with. Yeah. 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 It's tricky. I mean, I just, yeah. It is. And tricky. I think it's on, it's on the company too, to make the decision. Like we just have decided not to use PayPal because their service, their service to us is so bad that I'm not willing to deal with the fallout of when a customer has a That's problem right. and then I can't get a hold of that company. With Stripe, I can get a hold of people in 20 minutes. Like that's how good their customer yeah. service is. So. Yeah. And you have to choose those very wisely. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's uh, let's move on because otherwise pff, we could do a full episode just on on this. Um, you want to give an update on something and we'll, we'll, we'll bebop back and forth here? What do you got going on? Sure, I'll, I'll give a quick update on Youngblood. So um, for those who have been listening in, uh, we had uh, an opportunity to potentially take over a coffee space in uh, downtown Minneapolis from a uh, coffee shop owner who went out of business. Um, the original intent was, you know, here's already a space. It's already built out. We can make some minor modifications by a couple of pieces of equipment, be up and running right away. We always had the intent of being in the Minneapolis market. This kind of just presented an opportunity to do it right now. In that process, we looked into the possibility of getting a bank loan to be able to do that. We looked into the possibility of getting investors on board or an investor on board at least um, to be able to execute this vision. Uh, through that process, um, what, what started out as, you know, we have a space turned into we have an investor. So, mm -hmm. so then we had a, a, an investor who said, yeah, I want to invest. And he said, you know, I'd like my team to look at this location and I'd like to go into more in depth about this location. Meanwhile, we're working with a bank about, you know, how much money might we be able to borrow? So mm -hmm. in the process of doing our due diligence on this, what ended up coming out the other end was we have an investor who wants to do all of the banks investing um, instead of getting a bank loan and an investor, we can just get an investor. He is not thrilled about the location. Mm. He wants us to be in a different spot. 
So the move becomes, oh, we have a space. Let's work everything from that space to we have an investor mm-hmm. who who's interested in our growth. Let's find the best way to grow. So that became the new conversation and due diligence. We've now found a different space that is actually in a better location, but would require more money. Mm-hmm. The investor's willing to put up that more money, especially if I'm willing to sacrifice some of my units of ownership in the project um, for a greater pie overall. Yeah. Um, so that's what we've uh, tentatively verbally negotiated at this point. We have a lease space in downtown Minneapolis in a very up and coming area that we think is the most ideal spot in Minneapolis for us to have a coffee shop. Then we have an investor who's willing to put up all the money for that growth for the time frame that we need it um, in exchange for his ownership of the project. I have been, uh, I have said I am willing to, uh, reduce my ownership percentage by a few percentage points in exchange for getting, uh, at least half of my initial investment paid back at the time we do this transaction. Um, and in, in exchange for that new investor coming on board, um, you know, for a greater pie overall and, and shortening or, or, uh, reducing my ownership percentage. So now we're at the, and, you know, I've talked to the investor. We've had conversations. We're all in agreement verbally. Now we're having a turn, an attorney draft up the paperwork. So hmm. we're at a, uh, at a place now where if everything goes well, once the paperwork's drafted up, We'll have a new owner, a new minority owner. Um, I will have reduced my ownership shares. I will have been paid back half of my initial investment. And this minority owner will put up money for us to essentially quadruple the business size, um, hopefully over the next 18 to 24 months. Interesting. I have two questions for you. Yep. And I'll throw them at you because I think maybe they'll, one will be quick answer, one will be longer. The first is, how do you feel about all of this? So I'd just be curious to know, like the emotional side, like, because yeah. I know that you really like the owners of Youngblood and yep. you've built like a friendship with them. And then two, how much involvement are you going to have on the new location and moving forward? Or are you moving more to like a silent partner? What does that look like? Well, so uh, the first question is, like all investments I make, I have mixed feelings, right? So, so on the one hand, I want to support uh, Tim and Alicia in their vision for becoming a um, significant coffee brand. I strategically believe in the idea that the best way to do that is to do that in the Midwest first. I uh, want to see them reach a scale where their personal lives are completely taken care of for the rest of their lives uh, financially, and they can... Uh, reduce or release the burden of being entrepreneurs and trying to make it on your own um, financially. And I am, from a creative standpoint, love the love to be a part of this, right? It's fun to grow something and see a vision turn into a reality and, you know, move into a new market and all that stuff. So that's cool. 
The downside is, you know, you bring in a new partner, you never know how things are going to work out with partners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've done our due diligence, I feel, and I've done mine to feel like this is probably, you know, in this very moment, I feel strongly that this is a good partner. You just never know how it plays out in real life. Right. Um, So that's a little nerve wracking. Secondly, I'm reducing my ownership share, which is something I never want to do. However, uh, I'm always open to doing if the pie gets bigger. I am definitely a person who believes in the concept of uh, lesser of a bigger pie is better Mm -hmm. than more of a smaller pie. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm not thrilled about giving up portions of my ownership percentage, but I get it from a strategic perspective. Um, And that's the best way for us to accomplish this goal. Uh, And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of mixed emotions from those end. As far as my participation, my participation basically stays exactly the same, which is I'm there as a guide and uh, hopefully wisdom in any area that Tim and Alicia need guidance and wisdom. Uh, my, um, my, while I'm a minority, more silent owner, I still have complete say in anything related to the finances financial decisions, and anything related to partnership decisions. So that will remain, and I will still have my same number of votes for that. Um, but uh, so, so, you know, not much will change there. Uh, but as we grow, my participation becomes more valuable mm. as we grow, right? So there's only so much I can do for one coffee shop in one small town, in terms of offering my guidance and wisdom. So now hopefully they'll have better access to me to capitalize on bigger decisions. Um, and also we have a, a third, a fourth brain in the mix whom uh, is obviously a very smart, hopefully a very smart, capable <laughs> brain, um, which we can leverage. And also somebody who has uh, some high-end relationships that we can potentially leverage. So, so I feel great about it overall. Uh, but nonetheless, a little tentative. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 that's kind of what I thought your answer would be was kind of like a mix of both. And I, you know, I, I think when you care about being an investor or just being part of something like a partner in something, um, it's less about, you know, I mean, it is about some part of the money aspect, but it's also just a part of like, I'm on this journey with these people together. And, you know, as we've talked about many times here, you know, you becoming an investor in Youngblood is as much about helping people succeed as is it's more than that than it is making money on your money. Um, and so I think that that is kind of interesting to see how that plays out. I'll be very curious to see, you know, what this looks like in the, the coming weeks and months, because as we both know and have experienced many times over, it can all see shine, seem shiny and great on paper and in verbal conversations. But when like, the place, you know, starts to get set up. And when like, you know, marketing and, and you know, all of the decisions about how it's going to be run and, and all those things start to happen, like it could get dicey and it could get interesting. And uh, I'm not looking for drama. Like I'm not looking for like a reality TV situation here, but I do think that that's when the rubber hits the road, if you will. And you get out of the honeymoon phase of like the dreams and the ideas and the possibilities. And it's like, okay, now we have to actually like sling coffee every day and we got to, you know, make sure this is efficient and working 
thing and a good experience and that it follows the same thing we built in Fargo into this bigger city and, and how does that scale and how does that look and go? Um, I'm super pumped to, to kind of follow along with this also just because selfishly I love coffee and I love coffee shops. So it's fun. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one advantage, so, so where I think we have an advantage is neither myself or the other investor have opinions on coffee. Mm. Right. And coffee shops and wholesale. Right. So so that's actually to our advantage because there's going to be very few disagreements on that side of the business. Right. right. So it's like, no, 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 we should serve this coffee. bean. These, you know, right. we should source these coffee beans, not these coffee beans or no, no, no. Our branding should look like this instead of like that. Or no, no, no. We should train our staff like this instead of like that. So I'm out. Right. It, that's on Tim yeah. and Alicia. The other investors out. Right. So, so in most partnerships where the, where the problems occur is partners getting together that have differing opinions on the, on the staples of the business, right? Like, no, no, no. I like this kind of branding. No, I like this kind of branding. So we're not going to run into any of those issues. I don't foresee. However, where, where we do have potential issues always in any business is when things don't go according to plan, mm -hmm. then what do you, you know, then what's the decision? What's the group right. decision? And that will happen, of course, yep. right? You know, that is inevitably going to be the case. And that's where there could be potential challenges in that if things don't go according to plan right now, it's pretty easy for me and Tim to talk it out. Right. Now we have a new person involved, right? So how that will go, we don't know until we come up against that type of scenario. So we'll see. I will also say, um, you know, getting half of my initial investment back eases a lot of my um, concern, mm. right? And it'll really ease when I get the other half back because then it's just upside and then I don't have to feel so... Uh, connected to the final decisions <clears throat> and trying to protect from a protection standpoint or a fear standpoint. So no matter how conscious I am, there's some low-grade fear mm -hmm. running through my body and my mind until I get that last dollar back of my original investment. Yeah. But getting half of it back certainly reduces that low-grade fear quite a bit, obviously, um, because that's going to always be, as you know, my investment philosophy is always to make an investment, get my original capital back in 36 months or less, then I can sleep well at night mm -hmm. with whatever happens from there, right? So, so I'm always just trying to get that original investment back. And then it's like, okay, now we're playing with house money, the pressure's off. So, so I'm looking forward to that day, but it definitely is going to feel good when I get half of it back. And then of course I am able to make another investment. Yeah. Cool. All right. Keep us, uh, keep us posted. I'll be curious to hear, hear about that stuff. Uh, all right. I'm going to pivot over to my book and this is less of a shameless plug of my new book and more of, I just thought you might have some questions about it because uh, I know you've thought and dabbled in this area of thinking about writing a book and um, probably had a bunch of ideas and and all those other things and you read books. So uh, I have uh, my second book coming out. It's called Own Your Weird. By the time this episode goes up, the book will be out and available for purchase where all books are sold. Um, but this book has had a very interesting journey. And so I'll very quickly catch everyone up and maybe remind you because I'm sure you don't remember all the intricate details and stories of this book. Um, 
So let's off the top. I wrote my first book in 2013, self-published. It was called Creativity for Sale. And I just I really wanted to get a lot of stuff off my chest about what it had taken to start the I Wear Your Shirt business, what I had gone through, what it was like living as an entrepreneur. And I just I kind of saw this almost like trilogy of entrepreneurial books that I could write of like, here's the first chapter in, in this first book. And then a couple of years later, I would write the second chapter, which is this book now. And then maybe there'd be a third, fourth or fifth. So maybe it's more than a trilogy, but I just hadn't really seen any authors do that with their entrepreneurial journey. And, and maybe, uh, maybe Gary V's done that a little bit, but it's less about him and more about these like kind of big concepts that he wants to talk about. Right. Um, and I'm not trying to liken myself to Gary V. It's just trying to think about other nonfiction authors who've done that. So anyway, with my first book, uh, I actually made $75,000 selling sponsorships in the bottom of every page of the book. And it was a real big win for me because at the time, A, needed money. <laughs> B, uh, a lot of my author friends said, first-time authors don't make money, especially self-published ones. Like, you may sell a couple thousand copies of the book over a couple years. You know, that's that's what you're going to do. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, I don't like that idea. I'm going to challenge that, uh, that assumption, and I'm going to see if I can get creative and do it. And I did it. So with the second book, uh, I kind of had it thought, and so I wrote that book end of 2013, Fast forward to uh, 2017, and so it's four years. I felt like I had done enough other stuff that there was enough to talk about in between the two books because um, I didn't know how much time it would take to like have more stories and more things to share. But I was sitting at dinner one night with Caroline, and I just said, I think I'm ready to write my next book. And she was like, cool. And she knew kind of the idea that I was doing it. But, you know, I can't stop there. I can't just be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, go write the book. And I, I blurted out, I think I want to write the first draft publicly for everyone to watch. And I want to make an experience that I haven't seen before, which is just like you can literally see the document that I'm writing in almost like a Google Doc, but with a live chat and that like kind of stripped down so that you can't do anything else but watch me type and then chat with other people who are watching me type. And so I called the project Watch Me Write and had a website built. I paid a developer to build it in a couple of weeks, uh, spun it up, got it going and actually got two sponsors for it just because I knew people would be sitting there watching. So if I could get people, you know, brands to help pay for the time that I was spending on this and then also the time to build it and money to build it, um, that would be that. So got that going. I did that for two weeks. I wrote every single day for about five hours a day. Um, I didn't look at the chat initially for like the first couple of days because I didn't want to have a distraction. Like I was just wanting to be in writing mode. But kind of by the end of it, it was fun because if I had writer's block, I would just pop over to the chat and I'd go, hey guys, any questions about like what I'm writing right now? And at any time, there were probably 20 to 30 people who were kind of just tuning in casually, like watching me write. And I get a couple of questions like, okay, cool. And I could go back to the first draft. And it was just a really interesting experience. And, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it because it didn't feel like I ever got stuck. It felt like I could just keep cranking out, you know, words and, and answer questions. Um, so after that, so I finished the first draft. I had intended just to self-publish. I kind of was just like, okay, I'm just going to self-publish again. I'll put it on Amazon, you know, go from there. And after about a year of the book going through an editor that I paid, and then Caroline actually did a full edit of it. My wife, Caroline, if those of you listening don't know who she is, it got to this place where I was like, I, this is, I really like this book. Like this book is really good, 
but also I kind of have an itch to see if I can weasel my way into the traditional book publishing world. And could I do that in a weird way? And so I, <laughs> I had another idea, which I just don't tend to stop having. And I bought the domain dearbookpublisher.com. And it was kind of like, not like a middle finger to the industry, but more of just like, hey, I don't want to go and beg all these publishers behind the scenes. I want to put it out publicly and go, if you want to work with me, if you think this is good enough and this is creative enough, this is different. And that's the whole ethos of the book is it was at the time the title was do it differently. And so I, I built this site. I made a short little silly video. Uh, I basically wrote out what would be a book proposal, but in my own way and just kind of talked about the goal of the book, who the book was for, my audience size, all that, like my history of what I've done. And I got a book agent from that site. She then put my that site together as a proposal because book publishers are so old school that, that none of them would have looked at the site anyway, which I found out later, which is kind of funny. And she pitched the book. I ended up getting a book deal from Running Press. And that process took uh, like two months and then went through a full edit with an editor at that uh, publishing house. And that leads us to the book finished earlier this year, signed the manuscript, all done, uh, went through that whole process of getting the book up and running. And now I have this whole team that's working to help and market and promote the book. And the book is going to be out. So it's such a crazy journey where like most people are just like, okay, I'm sitting down and writing a book and you do all this, but I've of course made it weird. And we changed the title to own your weird, which I actually really come to love and appreciate because it's definitely who I am as a person. So that's the long winded kind of journey of the book. But I do think it's kind of interesting and, and unique and different and weird uh, from most other journeys of books. But I wanted to share it here because I thought you probably have some questions or some, some thoughts about it. But, but yeah, it's just kind of fun. Let, let me let me start with a question that's not necessarily related to the book, but but, you know, obviously was part of your uh, book process when you did the, you know, watch watch me write situation, which is why are you so obsessed with transparency? Mm. That's a really good question. I mean, I think the only way I can answer that is that I love it so much from a consumer's perspective. Like, I love when people share the big teardowns, the like behind the scenes, show me all the numbers, uh, talk to me about everything that went right or wrong. Um, you know, just just give me give me what is actually going on and don't feed me the the clickbait headlines and the perfect success story. Like I want to see it as it's happening and I want to feel like I'm connected to it. Why? And I think though? that uh, I just really like that connection. I think that connection really makes me feel almost like alive in a weird way. And mm. so when I do these things and I'm like super transparent about them, that connection to other people in whichever way I'm doing it. And that's actually like, it's kind of a weird thing it's the thing I don't like about podcasting is that I feel such little connection to people who listen because it's hard. It's hard to connect. Like it's just, is not a platform that's set up for that. And, and so, yeah, I think to answer your question, like, I think it's really just that like direct human connection uh, feels super interesting. That's interesting. I think you and I are very different in that way. I, I am <laughs> not necessarily a fan of transparency. I see some value in it, but I, I don't like sharing my life. Like I, I, especially with strangers, like I'm just like, I don't know. It makes me super uncomfortable. A lot of times you ask me questions in public, like if we're mm. co-hosting a um, you know, a workshop or something, which we've done in the past, or even on this podcast, you ask me questions about my personal life and I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm on a podcast. Like I, I don't, <laughs> so, so, uh, I've gotten better at it, I think, but, uh, and there's, I don't know what my 
hang up is per se, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know why I necessarily feel that way, but I definitely feel that way. I am not a fan of transparency. The other thing I'm not a fan of transparency in general is I think, I think there's very few people that do it well. So, mm. so I think a lot of it is vomiting on people. Yes. I think a lot of it is, uh, not particularly useful to the person being transparent or the person they're sharing with. Um, and I think it does a lot more damage than it does good in most cases. You know, there's a reason we don't know how the sausage is made. Mm. Um, and in most cases, that's a good reason. There's a good reason. Um, yeah. but I do think, uh, people who do it well, um, uh, are really good at it. And that is intriguing and interesting to me. So like, you know, like I would, I would consider a show like dirty jobs, for example, right. you know, as being a transparency show. And when it's done really well like that, it it's very fun, intriguing, knowledgeable, useful. We, we've kind of, you know, like all things we do as humans, we go too far with it and it's not produced very well. Right. Um, it turns into kind of a mess, you know, yeah. and is not particularly uh, helpful at all. Um, so that's something about the transparency side of it. Um, why do you write books? Yeah. Uh, the first, the first book I wrote, like I said, I think it was really just because I had so many thoughts and stories and also just like emotions that I wanted to get out. And I felt like it really took the length of a book to do that and do it in a way that felt like someone could actually get some value from it. So instead of just like, going on a rant and like a long blog post or putting out a bunch of tweets or even recording a video, it felt like there was really some, some meat on the bone, if you will, for Mm. a book. And then for this, for the second one, I mean, I think I, I kind of just like the challenge of writing a book. Like how can you take some stories and experiences and how can you find a thread to weave them through? Because that is actually what I think my biggest weakness is, is I'm not good at finding the thread that links everything together. Like that is Caroline's incredible place of genius. Um, You know, the, the editor that I worked with who ended up coming up with the reframing of own your weird. Like I really love the way that she was able to, find that thread throughout the whole book. And then we went back through and then kind of like fit that into everything in the book. And I I really enjoyed that. And that felt really interesting. And I don't, I don't see that happening in too many other mediums. Like, I think you can definitely do that in like a documentary, obviously that's, that's kind of the point of that. Um, So yeah, it just is interesting to me. And, and I think writing for me just comes so easily now. It's like, I can sit down and write for hours on end without much effort. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's good. Let me, pause there. It doesn't mean that I write, you know, interesting things. It just means that I can do it without too much uh, kind of hesitation. And so I think that's also why I like it. Hmm. And um, so with this book, there'll be a physical book and digital, I imagine, right? Yep. So I recorded the audio book a couple of weeks ago. I actually have to go back in as of recording this podcast this week to do like some final tweaks. Like there were a couple of things that I guess uh, didn't sound great or they wanted to redo. So yeah, it'll be Kindle. It's hardcover, which um, is not hardback. It's like, it's, it's a hardcover paperback, which I hadn't really, oh. I didn't really know was a thing. And I guess that's like the new thing in, in book publishing now that they like doing because it's kind of a mix. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, but it feels kind of nicer. So yeah, audiobook, Kindle, hardcover. And then, um, you know, the, the kind of the thing about traditional publishing that is good is that they have all the relationships with 
Barnes and Noble, which no one really goes to, Books a Million, which no one really goes to, all the indie bookstores and all those things where your book can actually sit on a shelf and collect dust, but also it's cool to get a photo with and see it in the wild. Yeah, it almost seems like that's more about an accomplishment than it is totally. about um, than you know, actually getting the book getting somewhere yeah, yeah. sold. Yeah. So, so I've read this book before it was edited, of course, um, you know, with a professional editor, I imagine, uh, when it was called Do It Differently. Yes. Um, why the title change? Uh, I th- the Again, like I, I didn't make the title change. My editor did. And I think she just came back and she said that they sat in a sales meeting and they were just talking about different ideas of the, the theme throughout the book. And they just felt like owning your weird was it felt more captivating than doing it differently. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I, I really like to do it differently. And then I was like, okay, well, let me actually think about why. And it was really just sunk cost bias. Like I only like to do it differently more because we came up with it. It was the original title, Caroline, you know, like we fit that throughout the book. But I actually like Own Your Weird because as much as I can say like I'm a different person, I think it's much stronger to say I'm a weird person. And I actually really like that. Like I resonate with that hardcore and I feel good about that. So to me, like that, it's almost like empowering for that to be the the thing throughout the book. Yeah, I, I think it's a smart marketing move uh, without a doubt, especially in today's culture where weird is in. Exactly. And they they said that too. They were like, yeah. you know, we think that this is just going to kind of resonate a little bit more. So. I, it's, it's a bit obnoxious for me with the, the, the weird <laughs> culture, the weird, yeah. this, this weird culture thing we're going through where it's like, I'm, I'm weird and here's how weird I am. Yeah. Aren't I yeah. great? You know, is a little obnoxious. Um, but I think it's the right move from a branding marketing standpoint. And, and also I think it's more emotional than practical. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so for the right people, they're going to resonate with an emotion versus like a practical exercise. Although I think more, I, I, I don't know, that's a toss up for me because like, I think one of the values that you bring is actually the fact that the, in the practical world, you're doing things differently. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing I appreciate probably about you most is not necessarily that you're weird and quirky about it, but that you've just said, well, just because those are the five steps right. that somebody told you doesn't mean that's how you have to do that. Right. You know, you can do these five steps or these 10 steps or these two steps. Right. And that's what I appreciate about you. So it is interesting, um, you know, the, the play on words there, but, uh, I think you're probably, you know, from my humble perspective, I think you're probably choosing the right words from a branding marketing perspective, though. People will eat that up, I think. Right. And that's, um, that's, that's part of the traditional publishing game, right? Yeah, like I give exactly. up some control to them to yep. decide on that. And, and it did feel like it felt incongruent when they first told me, I was like, no, like, I don't want to change the time. Like I had like a visceral <laughs> negative reaction to it. And then when I really sat with, it, I was like, oh, and it's not that different in the grand scheme of things. And also it's exactly what you just said. Like it needs to grab someone's attention yeah. on a shelf. And what are those two titles? Which one grabs you more? W- whether the stories, you know, mean whatever they mean, own your weird does grab you more, you know, if you're just looking at it. So yeah, it made sense. I, I don't think of you as weird, I guess, is kind of where it goes incongruent to me personally, but mm, I know you really yeah. well, obviously, personally. Exactly. Um, but I do think you're crazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. like and you come up I, I with crazy too. ideas and you can, you know, come up with bizarre scenarios that just like, how the hell do you even think of that stuff? You know, so I do think there's that part. But uh, yeah. but what I always love is you take that crazy thing and you turn it into something practical, yeah. which is the do it differently 
part for me, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so, so what's it like working with an editor? I'm just really curious about, so one of the hardest things for me with writing is, um, I edit my own ideas in my head so harshly. Mm. I can't like, I have the hardest time getting past the rough, getting to a rough draft mm. because it's like, it needs to be too good too soon. I almost feel like, um, when you're working with an editor, what, how does like practically, how does it go? Do they go, you know, like I understand they're going to give you technical things, right? Like, you yeah. know, this is a long, uh, you know, yeah. compounding sentence that needs to be broken down or whatever, but yeah. skipping those things, what are they doing for you that makes your book better uh, on a practical level? Yeah, so two things to that. One, so I think where I'm different than a lot of writers, and it's probably just because I don't consider myself a writer, although it's the thing I do the most of. Like, I just think of Stephen King as a writer. Right. Like, he's a writer. I'm not a writer. I'm just a person who, like, just, I don't know, like, types things. But my words aren't precious to me. Mm. So that is a big, um, almost like permission slip for me that when I'm writing stuff, I just don't care if half of it gets hacked away or if something gets changed completely. And I, it's because I know about myself, like I said before, like Caroline can weave these thoughts and ideas. Like I, I just don't do that. And sometimes I think that stuff comes out, but it's very rare for me. And I think I'll have like little bits of wisdom, but it's only through a lot of not wisdom and more just, just sharing more, just sharing stories or just writing things. So that's the first thing is that my writing is not precious to me. So in working with an editor, it's actually really easy for me. And we had this conversation multiple times with the editor that I worked with where she was like, Oh, how do you feel about cutting this story? I was like, I don't care. I literally don't care. You could cut three quarters of the book and we could rewrite it. And I would not care because as long as you think like your job is to make this book as great as it can be. My job is just to show up and share everything that I can to support what you see as the vision for this book. Like I have the initial vision, but it's, that's really where they come in. So a structural editor is really the person we're talking about who they sit back and they, sure, they'll do the like long sentence things and like they'll fix all that crap. But more importantly, they go, okay, here's this story that you just told me about you going to change your name at a courthouse and like selling your last name and all of that. But like, what does that have to do with the reader and what can they learn from it? And that's where I go, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, like, let me explore that now that you pose that question to me. <laughs> right, oh, right. that's interesting. Like that, that comes to the like, hey, here's a practical thing that a lot of people run into and like having a last name they no longer want. I dealt with it this way. I turned it on its head and like made lemonade from lemons and, mm. you know, that whole thing. And, and that's where that person becomes so helpful is that then, then they then pull that out of you. And I think for me at this point, like I can pull some of that stuff, but it's the really the like zooming the lens out, finding a way that it all flows together. That to me is the the really helpful part of, of having an editor. It's why I paid an editor with my first book because I knew I needed someone to help me do that, even though, you know, I didn't even know what it was like working with an editor. I just kind of fell into it. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's very helpful for me because I think my, I think I'm with you in that, uh, my words are not sacred. Like I'm, I'm fine with somebody saying, use this word or reframe it this way or whatever. But what I have a hard time with is I think 
in frameworks. Mm-hmm. And unless I have the framework, I can't write. Yeah. So like, like once I have the framework figured out, I can share my thoughts. But without the framework, I have a really hard time sharing my thoughts in writing. And that's what's hanging me up on courses. Yeah. Because courses require a framework. Right. I mean, I could just write individual courses that are just fucking courses, but, but, or, or lessons, I should say. I could write individual lessons that are just lessons. But the whole point of a course is all the lessons make sense together. Mm -hmm. And I have to have that decided upon before I can start writing lessons. The framework has to be there for me. And the framework, I feel like I'm very good at, but I'm very slow at, Mm. right? Like it has to, I have to really work through it for a while before it's captured in my mind. It's like my idea of being productive is the STEM model, right? Systems, tools, energy, mindset. So I have to have that framework first before I can sit down and write. Mm. And I can't, I don't put it together afterwards. I don't go, oh, here's what I have. Now, how does this all fit together? I have to have here's how all this fits together. Now write it. Mm. Um, and, and that's why I was just wondering where like an editor comes into that process, uh, really kind of for my own sake of how to write better. So yeah. that's interesting. Um, all right. So this is my last question on the book situation. So, <laughs> uh, I am, I'm really trying to get past this idea that we live in a self-promotion world Yeah, yeah. and I'm having a really hard time with it because I am fucking sick of everyone promoting every single thing to me. Right. Like I can't even have conversations with my own friends without them pitching me their book. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's just like, it's like, is that, is it, do you just accept that? Do you, I think one of the things that's made it interesting for you, like for me watching you is it's almost like you've done a combination of accepting that, but then putting your own, you know, do it differently, do putting your own spin on it. Mm -hmm. And that makes it okay for you. I'm having a hard time. Like I, I am so sick of like going onto Twitter, for example, and seeing nine out of 10 people I'm following promoting something. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, no, dude, I just want to talk to you. Like, yeah. I, I just, Jesus, you know, like, when are we done with the promoting, 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 promoting? And of course, you know, it's, it's pervasive and it's turning into an absolute disaster. Like I can't have a conversation with my niece without her being like, well, if I put that piece of artwork on my Instagram profile, well then, you know, I need to position it like this and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh my God. Wow. Like, like you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're 18 years old. Like just put your goddamn artwork on the internet. You know, like, like I'm having a real hard time with this one. So you've been doing this for a while now where, I mean, your whole career is essentially built on self-promotion in many ways. Um, and, and, um, getting the right attention for the right things at the right times, et cetera. How do you reconcile that? Are you just comfortable with it or what advice would you give? Yeah, it, it really is kind of like a, a, a mess of, of different things because at certain times, I definitely feel the same way you do. Like even about my own stuff, I'm like, ugh, do I really have to promote this 
you know, again. And and I actually like where we are in us talking about the promotion of Own Your Weird because by the time this comes out, I've already done 14 podcast interviews. I will have done like a little radio tour with the, the publisher set up, which I'm ho-hum about, but I'm just doing it because I want to like show up and, you know, they're trying, which a lot of publishers don't. So, um, you know, I've heard horror stories and people are like, yeah, my publisher like gave me my book advance. I never heard from them again. <laughs> like my publisher, we have like, they have a full marketing team that's getting on calls with me. Mm. And I'm talking to other people who have books published by that publisher. And they're like, they didn't do that for me. And so I don't know what the difference is. Like, I don't know why, if they just really like this book, um, they're putting more effort to it. But uh, I love, so I, it's really interesting thinking about promotion, sales, and marketing. Because a lot of times when you think about those things, it's just the transaction of, I have a thing, I want you person on the other end to buy that thing. And, and that's kind of like the surface level, right? But I, I read this tweet from Swiss Miss, who is a super popular, she's like a writer, and um, she's got a whole bunch of other stuff that she's done. Um, she started the company Tatly, if you've ever heard of that. It's like wow. the tattoos you can get. Um, but anyway, she's super smart, really good writer. But she had a friend who talked to her about selling, and the quote was, selling is a transfer of enthusiasm, nothing else. And that really reframed it for me because I think for what we do as creative entrepreneurs and just trying to make things that help people solve problems or trying to make things that we have done that then other people can do and we've seen value in those things, that's so true for us. It really is like I'm excited in this book of people owning their weird and not fitting into society. And I I want people to do that. And so I really am enthusiastic about that. But there is kind of an interesting like like turn on that where uh, Tea Tree, for example, I'm really not that excited about people making online courses as I was in 2014 when I set out to make Tea Tree. Do I still like the platform and am I still like grateful to have it as something that I get to work on and own and be a part of? Yes, but I'm not as enthusiastic as I was before, which is why I don't promote and sell Tea Tree much at all. It's why I don't spend time on the marketing of it because it would suck my soul dry if I just constantly had to promote Tea Tree. And I think that's the difference and why we have so many projects that we that we keep running into and keep trying is because we need the enthusiasm and the transfer of enthusiasm to not feel like we're just shilling another thing and promoting another thing. Well, so it's interesting because I go the opposite direction, which is which is, um, well, well, first of all, I, I think there's a big difference between sales and self-promotion. Hmm. So I have no problem with sales and I have no problem with people selling me things. There's lots of things I want to buy. So I don't have a problem with somebody selling me things. Where I'm stuck is I have a problem with people selling me things in environments in which I'm not trying to buy, number (laughs) one. And I have problems with people promoting themselves as the thing. Yeah. So, so, you know, if I want to buy a printer and I go to Best Buy, well, I'm telling you, right? I'm telling you, I want to buy a printer. So please sell me a printer. Yeah. And then your job is to sell me the best printer you think I need. Right. And I am 100% okay with that transaction. But if I just open up the internet and Best Buy is in my fucking face, (laughs) I have a problem with that. And if I'm, if I'm even worse, if it's not Best Buy that's in my face, but it's some asshole who (laughs) wants me to buy their printer, 
who's in my face, then it's even more of a problem for me. And I guess my problem is, is as a consumer, you can, you can hear my problem, which then transfers to, I don't want to be that asshole. So I'm really stuck on this thing where like, like if you had a sales rep and somehow I indicated to you teachery that I wanted to create a course and your sales rep sent me an email saying, Hey, I'm essentially somehow tipped off that you want to make a course. I'd like to sell you and I'd like for you to purchase Teachery as the platform you use for that course. Well, I'm all in. I'm right. happy to have a, you know, that conversation. I'm happy to do a demo. I'm happy to hear you out. Right. So it's actually the opposite where if you were to sell me teachery and you knew that's something that I might be interested in, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. Sell it. You know, tell me what's best about it. Tell me why I should do this instead of another platform, blah, blah, blah. Sure. 100%. But if I'm just trying to have a conversation with you and, you know, four out of five times we talk, <laughs> that conversation is, Hey, buy my book. By the way, I'm releasing a book by my book. By the way, I'm releasing a book by my book. Well, I'm out. Yeah. Like I'm not interested. And then, so of course, on the other end of that, I don't want to be that person. Yeah. And, and that's a really hard thing for me because I feel like we've entered a world in which it's almost necessary, right? Like it's almost the, the, the publishing company is not going to sell your book for you. Right. Bookstores are certainly not going to sell your book for you because no one goes to them. Amazon is going to kind of sell your book for you, but mm-hmm. not until you've become popular enough for them to sell it for you. Yep. Right. So you have to do the legwork there. So it's, it's, it's like we've entered this world in which it's almost necessary, but I'm so turned off by it yep. that I can't imagine myself doing it. I think I've sent one tweet, for example, about this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even selling anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing for you to even buy. Yeah. And I've sent one tweet that is the only marketing or sales, quote unquote, <laughs> that I've done for this podcast. And that is only a retweet of your tweet. <laughs> and, and That is literally the only thing I've done. And I feel guilty <laughs> to you even. I feel guilty to you that... You're working hard to get people to listen and I'm doing nothing. And I feel like a jerk on that one hand. Yeah. On the other hand, I feel like a complete douche <laughs> to the people who know me yeah. to be like, listen to my podcast, listen to my podcast, listen to my podcast, listen to my podcast. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. So I don't that, know what to do. I think that is the really interesting paradox of where we are right now. Like I, you know, there, there are two things that come to mind that I think are actually like, big pieces of wisdom, which is number one, you talked about permission marketing, which Seth Godin talked about many years ago when kind of he saw the way that the internet was going with like email marketing and everything where, Mm. you know, we're at a place where permission marketing barely exists anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's just, it's like you said, you log into any social app that you use, you even like you search Zappos or Best Buy on your computer. And then guess what? They follow you around everywhere you go. And it's almost like they don't even need your permission anymore. And now we're getting into the thing where I know you're not on Instagram, but like I will have conversations with Caroline and then I will go on Instagram and I will see an ad for New Mexico. And like, I have not done anything to look for New Mexico other than I talked to Caroline about the time we went to Taos, New Mexico, and it was fun. Mm -hmm. And we're at this place where permission marketing has been completely broken down. And it's because of the second thing, which Gary Vee said, and that's my second Gary Vee mention of this podcast, which is surprising to me because I don't love and follow all the things Gary Vee does. But 
his quote of marketers ruin everything. Yeah, they do. And it's it's a hundred percent true. It's like as soon as the marketers and the promoters and the even the salespeople get a hold of the platforms that we enjoy, it's why Twitter is so noisy and so hard to stay on and be on. And it's why I'm ruthless now with who I follow. Like I will quickly unfollow someone if they're over promoting something. But so this is the interesting part of this, Greg. And this is actually, I want to po- kind of posit this question back to you. So like the oatmeal, I love the oatmeal, the comic book series. Uh, it's just like, it's so good. It's always so creative. He could promote anything he wants to me at a constant basis as a fire hose to my face. And I would be fine with it because I'm so interested in it. I'm, I'm so, I love what he creates. And I think what's really kind of curious to me about that is maybe, and this is both for both of us, but maybe it's like this podcast isn't something that we love enough. And it's, and it goes back to that tweet, right? It's something that we're not so enthusiastic about that we want to shout it to the rooftops at all times. And I just think that that's kind of like, par for the course. You know, you're not always going to do those things. I and, disagree though. Like I, but, so I, if that's, if that's the case, if you disagree, so then how, how come you can't come to terms with promoting this podcast more and not feeling like a douche? <laughs> because, because I am enthusiastic about the content in this podcast, just as I am about anything that I'm most enthusiastic about. I'm really a believer that the way we talk about small business and our small businesses is super beneficial to probably every small business owner or very few exceptions. I am not going to keep telling you that though, small business owner, every single day of your life. I am just not going to do that to you. So I don't think it's about enthusiasm about the product or service. I think it's something deeper than that that is going on here that makes it obnoxious. And and, and I, I don't know how to reconcile that, yeah. but it's not like I've been enthousi- enthusiastic about a lot of things in my life, uh, like overly zealous and enthusiastic about them. I don't stand in front of people's faces shouting at them about it. <laughs> it's fucking obnoxious. But I don't feel like the oatmeal does that to me. Like, I feel like that's where in that instance specifically, like it's everything he creates and everything he puts out. And maybe it's a bad example because like what he creates is not necessarily a business per se. Like it's not a product or service that he sells. It's not a printer, if you will. But it kind of is, you know, like it it kind of is like the the way that a lot of like creative creation and entrepreneurship is going is the content model where you have a story that you're telling and you have a thing that you're putting out into the world and you have to create content to do that. And I don't know, I I wonder, you know, for you, I don't know, I just would be really curious. Like I find you to be one of the smartest people I know and like one of the best problem solvers I know. And I feel like this is one of those that like, there's gotta be a solution for you. You know, like there's got no. Be- there's definitely a solution. I agree. Yeah, and 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 I really do wonder. Like, it would be interesting to see if we do stumble into that as this podcast goes on. Of like, it's almost like my challenge to you. And I know you don't like me calling you out on things, but I don't feel like this is a personal question or attack. So it doesn't have to be that way. But oh, sure it's almost not. like with your wisdom and your experience. Like we talked about this a couple episodes where we were brainstorming ideas for how to market and promote the show. But what? 
what could that be for you? You know, like what could that be where you don't feel like you're promoting like crazy, but you feel like you are extending an opportunity for people to find this podcast in interesting or unique ways because it will really help them. It will really resonate with them. See, but I think that's mental gymnastics. And I think that is no different than somebody that votes for Trump and says and and convinces. I think it's no different. It's like, well, I'm voting for Trump because he's going to pick the right uh, judges to go to the Supreme Court. No, no. I know he's racist, but I'm going to ignore that part And vote for him anyway because he's going to put the right justices on the Supreme Court. That kind of bullshit mental gymnastics, I refuse to do with my life. I'm laughing so I'm I'm laughing so hard, Greg, because this shows how upset you are about promotion that you literally yes. are likening it to Trump. It's no different to me. <laughs> it is no different for me to when you. It's complete bullshit when you say to yourself, I'm not self-promoting. This I'm is finding a, good... a way to get information into people's hands who I'm enthusiastically <laughs> wanting to have that in. Bullshit. You're self-promoting. But I think it's bullshit. necessary. It's necessary. And like, well, that's what I'm so, asking. Is it necessary? <laughs> and do I just have to do it because it's necessary? I have to let you know. I'm both, and just swallow my own tongue I'm and do it anyway. So sweaty and so happy at this moment. <laughs> like I'm uncomfortable, but I'm also so enthralled that this is being recorded because I feel like so rarely do you get this emotional about things. And I do think that that's like that's where some of the best stuff comes from because it's almost like this, this has been a fire that's been like your pilot light, right? Like it's been burning in you and now we're just roaring. Like you turn the fire up to 12 and we are just like, and we're going. But I think it's also where maybe a problem like solving thing comes out of this. Like maybe this inspires you to go, okay, I've confronted this issue. I hate promotion. It is like the Trump of running a business. Like it's those (laughs) types of things. And how can I figure out a way that, that, that I can do this that doesn't feel that way? Like, how can that happen? Because if, if you don't figure that out, I think that's where you do shoot yourself in the foot as a business owner, as a content creator, as, as just an entrepreneur. Well, okay. That if you, if you don't figure out how to play the game a little bit, you're going to get left behind. Well, that's the question I've always been trying to figure out. Do you really get left behind? So I've had people telling me this since the invention of the internet. Greg, you're going to get left behind. Greg, you're going to get left behind. Greg, why the fuck am I so far ahead then? (laughs) This is the point that I I, I can't get past, right? So like everyone tells me I'm going to be behind. I'm going to be behind. Greg, you don't participate in social networks. You're going to be behind. Greg, you don't create content. You're going to fall behind. Greg, well, then why the hell am I so far ahead with all my businesses then? But that's the thing, right? So it's you're far ahead with businesses. So what is the game I'm not playing that's going to bury me? But that, so I think we're talking about a little bit of two different like apples and orangutans. Like okay, okay. In in business stuff, you win constantly because you know the systems that are in place and you know how to make those things work. Those same things don't apply to what makes a podcast get into the ears of more people. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that's right. A good point. And 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 so I do think like in the yeah, Greg, you're a winner in business, like no doubt, hundred percent. But in the like making a podcast popular, it's a different game. It's a whole different set of tools, a whole different set of skills. And I, I think arguably like 
both of us don't have those. And it's really the discussion of, and it goes back to that state of marketing episode that we did in talking about how we wanted to market and promote the show of like, but do we want to do those things? And if we don't, then we have to understand that's the way this, this, this game is being played. And right. if we don't play the promotion game, no one's going to find this podcast. Yeah. What you're saying is I'm a, I'm, I'm ahead in business way behind in podcasting, which is right. Which is right, right? Like that's- and I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like I, I don't like promoting every episode that I record of both either my show, previous shows, this show. I feel like it's too much. But you know, the interesting part of that is no one's ever told me it's too much. Now I have seen a little bit of behavioral stuff where like people aren't retweeting or liking or commenting or whatever. So like there's a little bit of behavioral uh, triggers there. However, maybe I am my own version of the oatmeal to some people, right? Like I could right. just tweet out an episode that I, every single podcast episode and people be like, yes, thank you. But now my pool of people is very small. So right. it's not going to really make much of an impact, but it could be the same thing. And I just am kind of like not doing the, those people justice. Yeah, no, I think that's where I, where I get hung up. Right. Because like, like I'm happy to share my knowledge with everyone. I, I am 100% happy and I'd like to make money off doing it. Yep. You know, I think it's a great, I think that's, you know, a valid capitalist position. And in America, that's wise. I just struggle with self-promotion side of it, where it's like, I'd love to have courses. I'd love to have, you know, fine, I'll write a book. Fine, I'll have podcasts where I'm sharing the content yeah. or videos or whatever. Happy to share the content, not happy to shout at you all goddamn day about it. And that's how it feels to me with with people I love, yeah. like with people I, I respect and love. And also I get it, right? Like I understand why they're doing yeah. that. That That's their livelihood, right? Like it makes sense to me on a practical level. I just have something inside of me yeah. that is just like anti doing it and I can't seem to get past it. And so like when I see you, you write a book, you're sharing valuable information in that book. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that what you're sharing should get in as many people's hands that fit the description of somebody who could find value in that. Firmly believe that. I believe that if it supports your livelihood, uh, you should do it. So I believe all these things. And then we get to like the last mile mm -hmm. where what I don't believe, though, is every single time I turn on Twitter, I have now seen a tweet from you mm -hmm. about your book every single time I log on to Twitter. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that to me is a turnoff. It's like, well, okay, well, I'm not going to read his tweets. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's just how it feels. Yeah. Right. Like, it's just like, and I know you. Yeah. And I still don't want to read it. Yeah. Right. Like, so, so like, like, and, and what bothers me is, is that I don't want to do that to someone else. Yeah. I don't want to do that to, to, to the people that care about my work. And like with a business, you're right. I don't have to do that. Yeah. Right. Like, we have salespeople, we have marketing people, we do more permission marketing than we do, you know, in your face marketing or whatever that's called. Uh, but when it comes down to your own work, but see, it's worse to me when it's your own work. Yeah. Like it, it's like, it's like, I cannot imagine, uh, you know, Picasso or Da Vinci or I don't know, you name the person, you know, any, any sort of musician, any sort of writer, any sort of painter, just all day long in your face about it. Like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I, I just, that I'm struggling with that. Yeah. And I, I mean, 
I think I have one more kind of like part of this and then we can wrap up. Um, we're not even going to get to the Wandering Ainsley stuff. People are going to have to wait for oh, the next shit. episode because it's too long. No, it's fine. It's fine. I don't mind. Um, actually, it gives us more time for us to work on stuff and bring bring that to you. But the so I actually really like this. The the like if Picasso like Picasso didn't have to do that, you know, whatever. Um, I think that, again, it's comparing apples to orangutans like the time that Picasso existed in great artists were revered and paid attention to, and maybe some weren't, right? Like they didn't become famous until after they died and people found other work and all that stuff. Sure. And and there's a little bit of like uh, kind of rose-colored glasses when we think about that because we can't go back and actually see, well, how difficult was it for them? And, and what were they doing that wasn't documented that actually got their art in front of people? And I do think it's a little bit different and, and very, very... Uh, different way that we communicate now than we did then of word of mouth then so powerful. Like it's still powerful today, but we're talking about 15 things in one sentence as opposed to like the one thing that is really gripping us back in a time like that. Yeah, And, and so I really just think that again, it's like you get to today and you have to go, okay, we want people to hear this podcast because we really believe in it. We have to do something to do that. So my final question to you is, if you really believe in this podcast, as I do, if you really believe in the stuff that we're sharing is helpful, is there a way that you could, just like you would for the businesses that you run and succeed, hire yeah. a company or a person to create the collateral, the content, the stuff for this podcast where you are disconnected from it and you just go, hey, you're a creative agency person, whatever, I just want you to take this message and get it in front of people. Here's the budget that I have to do that with because you're going to have to spend money to do it. And let's see what happens and let's go from there. Yeah. And I think that's the most appropriate way to do it. And we've talked a little bit about that, but we haven't gone into detail in terms of like me making courses, for example, right? Like, and then, you know, buying advertising, traditional, yeah. you know, types of advertising instead of me just shouting from the rooftops about the course. Um, and having someone else handle it, I think is probably the, at least the first step yep. for me, uh, getting used to this, this kind of model. So I 100% think that's probably the right way to go to start. I do think there's a bit of a downside in that we live in a world in which people want to hear from the person, not the brand, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, there is some of that, but, but I agree with you. I, I think that's where it starts, uh, without question. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I'm, I'm always, and I'm fascinated by the concept, which is why I asked you like, what's your plan? Yeah. Um, and what are you, and how do you feel about it? Because I think, I think you do about as good a job as one can do who doesn't want to be obnoxious to people, yep. but still knows that the right thing to do for your businesses, your ideas and your livelihood is to share. Yep. So, so I, I, you know, I admire and respect your position on it and the way you think about it and the way you do it differently, um, for those very reasons. And that's, you know, that's why I asked before I went on my rant there, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I liked your rant. I 100% yeah. love your rant. And I, I think it's important because it just shows the emotional part of running businesses, doing things, sure. creating stuff that a lot of people think they're going to be detached from that they're not. Like yeah, you're, you're just, not, you're right. going to run into it and you have to decide. And and we talk about this in Build Without Burnout too. It's like the majority of entrepreneurs spend 
75% of their time, and that's actually way more than that. It's 90% of their time making the thing and 10% of the time promoting, marketing, selling the thing. And you wonder why it doesn't create a sustainable business for you. And it's because you don't get out of the creation mode and get into promotion, marketing, and sales mode. And if 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 that like chart never balances out, then you're never going to be successful. It just is impossible. You're, you're fighting a game that you can't win. So yeah. And I 100% agree with you on that. Right. You know, I, I am in full support of that mindset, uh, without a doubt. And it, and, and then it becomes, how do you then just not be a person who's like a parrot just screaming, like, you know, buy my course, buy my course, you know, it's like you have, and that's, that's the battle that I'm fighting right now with this book. Like I have, as of recording this, about a month until the book comes out. And the publisher is not putting pressure on me, but I also know that if I don't promote, it's just like you said, if I don't promote this, they're not going to promote it for me. Right. So I have to include it in emails and I have to include it in Instagram and I have to include it in Twitter. And I'm just doing the best that I can do to feel like I'm not shoving it in people's faces too much. And if it's going to ruffle some people's feathers that they're hearing me talk about it, I have to be okay with that because I right. believe in the book enough that I want to promote it and not have someone go, Oh, I, I, I didn't know you had a book coming out. Like this is the last thing that I want anyone to say, you know, I don't want them to go, Oh, I know you have a book. Like stop talking to me about it. But yeah, there is a fine line there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Good point. Uh, let's, let's wrap up. Do you have any move the needle items? I have two for you. Um, they're both kind of you know, weird or interesting, but you go first. anything. In, uh, so I'll start with, with, Uh, Well, I'll just do both and then you can tell me if you have anything. The first is a very simple app that actually the the new developer that I hired to work on Teachery told me about. And this is probably not going to matter to many people, but it's really helpful for me. It's called Snipper App, Snipper. And it basically is a way to organize little snippets of text or code. And I really love it. Like it's, it's like notes almost on the Mac, except it it has different options for uh, different code snippets, different JavaScript things. And, and I, I use it the most for actually our brand colors for Wandering Aimfully. So like being able to pull those out and like put those in different like graphic elements or emails or whatever. Hmm. Um, but then also I have these like little, little code things that I've written for articles that we write or emails that we write that just formats things nicely. Um, and it's really good. I, I've, I've also started using it for just some quick copy and paste replies that I either get from emails that I get a lot or either like some customer service stuff. I already have a system for that, but just little things like little snippets of things that I can keep. And it's really quick. It's really fast. Um, it definitely leans a little bit more towards developers. So, um, you know, it's not going to be like a friendly writing app that you write in, but I've just really liked it. Snipper app. It's free too. So that's good. And the other thing uh, I, so I actually finished this, like, I think the day after it came out or two days after it came out, I crushed through the show, the boys on Amazon prime. And this, I, I wasn't sure what to make of this series. And so it's essentially superheroes that are not good people. <laughs> and so I love it because it pokes so much fun at like the Marvel universe and like how every one of those superheroes is perfect and great and they're all amazing people and blah, blah, blah. And these guys are actually like a bunch of dicks. <laughs> and what I, uh, you know, I saw the trailer for it and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, is this going to be hokey or weird? 
I, cr- I crushed through it. I loved it. Some of the best writing, uh, you know, some of the acting, it's superheroes. Like you're going to get some cheesy stuff. But um, I even thought like the effects were really good because some of that can get kind of bad quickly. Uh, it also got picked up for a second season before it even came out. So hmm. that's how good people thought it was when they were kind of seeing the early screening of it. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, I, re- I just loved it. So if you love superhero stuff, you're a person listening to this and you're like, oh, I love the Marvel Universe. I love action stuff. You will love the boys. It is really, really good. Dark. I should say that. It's dark, but it's really good. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are my two for you. Yeah. Mine are, uh, well, first of all, I've gotten back into doing yoga every single morning. I, oh, nice. I, I just, you know, like I'm not into yoga from the uh, yogi perspective. I'm into uh-huh. it from the stretching and calm yourself down perspective. Yep. So, uh, you know, and I used to do it a long time ago when I was in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, mixed martial arts, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but I got away from it for a long time and I kind of brought it back in and man, it is just so helpful, um, in making sure that I feel well, keeping my blood pressure down and, uh, keeping me loose. So a a go-to app or YouTube channel that you're doing, or are you just doing your own flow? I just do my own flow. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I set up one of my rooms as a fitness room. And yep. so I've got my weights in there and I've got my yoga mats down and I've got my bike up on a, um, you know, one of those cycler things where I can ride my bike indoors and all that. So kind of set up a room to do all that. Is it uncomfortable if I ask you like, like what your, what your flow is? <laughs> What my flow is? Well, I mean, I don't want to get into the uh, individual positions, but, uh, but but are you like, are you, are you getting it? So this is actually really interesting to me because Caroline and I've been talking a lot about getting back into yoga. Um, we did a like 30 day yoga challenge with a YouTuber had like a 30 day yoga challenge that we did. And it was really fun. Like it kept us accountable to it. Um, but we just have fallen off. And I think it's cause I'm like you, like, I don't really want to go to a yoga studio. I don't really want to hear the yoga teacher talk about like what's going on in life and like how we need to breathe through our work and like all this stuff. Like I just don't need that. But I, I sometimes will do yoga just on my own. And I find myself like, I only do downward dog, like uh, Shavasana and like the three warrior poses. And then I forget all the rest of them and I don't have anything else to do. That's why I'm actually asking. Uh, Well, no, I mean, I can share with you offline of the specific, you know, it'll take too long to go through each step, but I have the same routine. Okay. um, And I follow the same routine every morning. It takes about 20 minutes to do. Um, But essentially, like you're saying, you know, like I'm walking through the different poses and different, um, positions. Um, and, and it's kind of just one that I've come up with on my own. Like I know enough about yoga to know what order to do and how to do it and so forth. I wouldn't consider myself, you know, super knowledgeable. You start with warrior three, you get right into like a triangle pose. Yeah, I got it. Exactly. So, so I'm doing that and that seems to be helping in a lot of different ways, um, which I should just never get out of, you know, just do that no matter what. It's super helpful. And then the other thing, I know I've mentioned this before, but I've been really impressed with the Calm app. Mm -hmm. I'm not impressed with a lot of apps. And I got to say, like, I just really think they nailed this one and I've been getting deeper and deeper into it. You know, when I started using it, I only just did the daily Calm, which I think is perfect, by the way, because it's, I think it's usually like 12 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So it's just a 12 minute meditation, which if that's all you did, 
If you just found 12 minutes every day, that's huge for your life if you yeah. compound that over years and days. So uh, I was just doing that, but now I've kind of gotten into some of their other things. They're, they're, they've, they've got a lot of programs in there. Hmm. And uh, I've just been super impressed with the way they've done that app. So they've nailed, to my, in my opinion, they've nailed that app. And that's helped me a lot. So if you're somebody... It's not really like, especially if you're somebody that's not going to want to get into, you know, meditation and yoga and things on the level that one would perceive you would need to, you know, for it to be like, you know, I don't like telling people that I do yoga and I don't like telling people that I do meditation because then it goes down this whole like kind of surface level path of like, well, what do you do? Trans you know, yeah. you know, this type of meditation, that type of meditation. No, no, no. no. I just sit quietly for 12 <laughs> minutes, you know, like let's, let's not, let's not pretend like we're monks in a, you know, temple or something here. Um, so it's very practical to me, I guess is the point I'm making. So I really love the, the calm app. And I will tell, say that, um, I've been listening to a new podcast, uh, called pivot, with hmm. um with uh professor scott galloway and um oh man now i'm gonna escape the other uh co-host's name at the moment uh, but she's very good as well where uh it's a tech podcast but it's tech that i can actually listen to and not kind of be Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher. Yeah. Sorry. Um, gotcha. um, you know, so one's a professor, one's a journalist mm. and, but they talk about tech and, uh, it's just very good. If you want to kind of understand where we're at society, where society and tech meet, in my opinion, mm. like they're not just talking about like technology. They're talking about the tech industry and what it is, what it's helping, what it's not helping and how it's affecting the world and so forth. And if you don't know Kara, like she's a legit journalist who's, you know, been around a long time and she kind of challenges the status quo in tech a lot. Mm. Um, and she's also, you know, she's loved and hated and respected kind of all at once because of that. And then Professor Galloway, um, you know, he is very outspoken, and, uh, you know, not one to mince words. And I always appreciate that. So, cool. um, so it, it's, it's really good. Um, you know, I, in my podcast obsessions, uh, that's now on the list of, of ones I'm listening to that I'm loving. Do you have uh, an episode that I should jump into? Cause some of these I'm like, mm. I don't want to hear them talk about 8chan. Cause that's like the abysmal part of the internet. I don't want to like, I don't care about Facebook. Yeah. But see that to me is what's so interesting, right? So they're yeah. talking about it from the perspective of should it exist? Should it not right. exist? Should it be regulated? Should it not be regulated? So if you're the type of person that churns those ideas in your head, right? that's very interesting. Yeah. If you're not a type of person that churns those ideas in your head, you're not going to like this podcast. Yeah. No, I think about those things all the time. That's why I don't read news or like, because I'm just like, oh, this is going to make me angry. But if the way that you're saying that, I do like it. I also love Vox's stuff. Like I love their video series. I love The Verge for the most part when they're not talking about Trump. Um, I do appreciate the quality uh, in which they, they do that stuff. I have one question for you about this podcast, though. It's a very weird question. Yep. Do they have Goldman Sachs as a sponsor? Mm, I don't believe so. So I'm on like a... I don't know that. I'm on a tear. I immediately unsubscribe from podcasters who have Goldman Sachs as a sponsor. Like I used to listen to How I Built This. And I loved how I built this. And then Goldman Sachs is a sponsor. And I was like, nope, 
I'm out. I don't Why? Just, I just, because of the whole, everything that went on with the mortgage industry and like how much they were involved in it and all the golden parachutes and mm. the fact that like they were a big part of the reason why that happened. And I just think that creative people taking money from those people is like, you're not drawing a line in the sand for your values. And that's just I think me. That's a hard one. I totally and know that I'm like a, a probably a loner in this, but like even like Marquez Brownlee, the guy who's a super popular YouTuber, one of the most popular MKBHD is his name. He started a new podcast. I was so pumped because I love his stuff. First episode sponsored by Goldman Sachs. I'm like, okay. Yeah, but I, I, I think what makes that tough for me is I think things are so much more tied together than that, that it's hard to draw those lines. Like, like, I guess it depends on where you want to draw that line. And perhaps that's an episode for us yeah. on, on where we draw lines. Um, because I think that's an interesting thing in today's society, more and more with business, people are, people, individuals are drawing lines. But if you, I mean, I, I mean, I would have to say, I would, I guess the next question I would ask, then why do you use an iPhone? Because I guarantee you Apple has taken money from Goldman Sachs. Well, yeah. I mean, so some things are like uh, not necessarily a necessary evil because I could obviously use a different phone. But it's it's also like my life would be less efficient from a business standpoint if I didn't use an iPhone. Okay. So it's like. So if it's if it's kind of like entertainment. Right. And you can make another choice. Exactly. You're going to make another. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's and I think that's, it's okay. probably worth an interesting conversation for us because yeah. again, yeah. this is where like we've had these conversations in person before. Right. Um, right. And I'm actually kind of sad when Caroline isn't there because I think she adds like a whole other element to these conversations. Oh yeah, she's, for sure. She's she way does. smarter than I am. So, uh, well, me too. but I will no listen matter. to this podcast. If I hear Goldman Sachs, I will not listen to it, but you haven't led me astray in any podcast recommendations. So, uh, I will, I will tune in on this. So I would be surprised if they had Goldman Sachs, but, uh, but yeah. I cannot guarantee that. Yeah. Okay. That was a super, super weird way to, uh, round this one out, but, uh, lots of good stuff here. I, I really do <laughs> appreciate, uh, the conversation, my friend. It, it's always fun. We talk about it all oh, the time. Likewise. Um, also, uh, I just happened to notice we've gotten, we've got a couple positive reviews of the show on Apple podcast. So thank you to the folks who have left reviews. If you have not rated and reviewed the show and you are enjoying it, um, we are not supported by Goldman Sachs. So if that's a win for you, leave a review, click the five stars. If you just loved Greg's tear earlier in this episode, which I did, like I may create a fake iTunes account just to leave a review that I loved <laughs> the like energy and like just the, the the real passion that you had. I'm being serious too. Like I'm not even joking. Like I am really genuinely excited about that. So um, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Super appreciate you. And we will be with you on the next episode. Until next time. Thanks a lot for listening. 